You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. It's been so good to be in God's house today. And so what I would like to do is have you go with me to God's Word here to 2 Samuel. We'll be giving an overview of chapters 7 and 8. We're going to begin there in verse 1. So will you stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word? Now, if you have a paper copy of God's Word, this won't be too hard to follow along. But I'm going to skip around from 7 to 8. And so if you have a digital copy, just, just you know have nimble fingers, okay? We'll get there together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to notice the context here. David has built his own house. Now he feels the need to build a house from the Lord, uh, for the Lord. And we're going to see how that works out, okay? Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, now notice this, Nathan says, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, I want you to skip down verses 18 and 19. Obviously, the Lord said no to David and to Nathan. But notice, even after the no, then King David, verse 18, went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. Oh, Lord God. Now notice that you might even underline that word mankind. God had a message for the whole world as a result of this episode. This is a big deal. Now look at verse 29. It says, Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Giving you an overview here. You see how God is working. Now, here's a very interesting thing. In chapter 8, if you turn the page to chapter 8, verse 6, and the last part of verse 6 gives a summation of really that whole chapter, the 8th chapter, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So we start off with David getting a no from God, and we're going to end here with this thought that God gave him tremendous victories in spite of the no. Let's pray. Lord, we know that sometimes all that is in our heart is not from you. And so, God, we pray that today as we meditate on this passage of Scripture, you will teach us what we need to know. And God, give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want to give you a thought. Hopefully, this thought will roll around in your gray matter today and in the days to come. Here it is. A good idea is not necessarily a God idea. A good idea is not necessarily a God idea. 
I mention that because when we read the first few verses of chapter 7, this sounds like a really good idea. David is only doing what he saw other kings and kingdoms around him doing because in those days, when you won a victory, you assumed it was because God, your God, had been uh, good to you and had given you victory. And so when you look at all the instances from the ancient world, you'll see these temples, these gigantic edifices being built all over the world in honor of the victory that they had won. It makes sense. But our God doesn't work like other gods, little g, of this world. He is the Lord God. He is the one God. And he wants to do things a little bit different. We know that there is no God beside Yahweh. And, and when we come to this passage, um, we see that, that the Lord is at work in a special way, that he is working in spite of David, not listening well, in spite of David and Nathan. So it's not just the king. Uh, we always like to pick on politicians and say they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, some, sometimes we pick on preachers too, but, but here the prophet and the king both get it wrong. They're not listening. I can tell you. Uh, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can tell you as a pastor, I've not always been right. I shared with the first service I'll share with you a few years ago. I had been at First Baptist Church DeSoto for some 16, 17 years, something like that. I was convinced the Lord was calling me to a church there in St. Joseph's, Missouri. I was convinced of it. I was 100% sure. I love those people. They seem to love me. And that's where we were going until my wife said, you can move there, but I ain't going with you. And I knew I needed to listen to that. That seemed like something I ought to pay attention to, right? So the long and short of it is this. I was completely wrong, not because the church wasn't great. I still, I'm going to tell you, and I've told my brothers and sisters up there in northwestern Missouri this several times, I still grieve this because I love them so much. But the Lord spoke so clearly to us as a family, and I was wrong. I was dead wrong. And, and friends, I'm not saying that if it can happen to me, it can happen to you because I'm special. I'm just saying every single one of us, it is very possible that we engage our logic before we engage in listening. Now let that settle in because I'll just about guarantee you that you will often put on the same level your logic with listening. You assume so often, as I do so often, that, 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 our, that my thoughts, that your thoughts are where God is leading. But listen, God is speaking. And if we will put our ear up, if we will listen carefully to him, he will show us, one, that our hearts are less than perfect, and two, his love is perfect and his way is better. God has a great plan for us, but we cannot allow our minds to get in the way of his word, his will, and what he wants to do in our midst. In this passage, we see the Lord keeping David from a serious, grievous error. But in the end, there's nothing but love and thanksgiving to celebrate because God shows up and he gives David a hope that is greater than any building can ever provide, bigger than any edifice that can be erected in this world can provide. God shows David an eternal message and an eternal hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the lessons that I've learned from this passage is that, yes, sin will leave a mark, 
but it need not mark us for life. See, David, he messes, he messes up here. He misses the point. It is a mark, so to speak, on him. When, when Nathan has to show up again and say, listen, this is, this is not what God wants. But you'll notice in this passage, it did not mark him for life. David becomes a better worshiper of God as a result of this no. And I want to say to you, this is not easy. As I've already shared with you, when God has said no to me, I didn't get over that right away. It took a long, long time. In fact, I didn't fully get over it until I saw what God was doing. And, and a, a committee from Ridgecrest called me. And I began to realize that one door was closed because God's plan was different and better. He had a plan. And so that's what we all have to do. We don't have to be marked by the no that we get or the failures that we have. God has something beautiful for us because he loves us so very much. But what will keep us from experiencing that is our sin. So let's talk about for just a few moments the darker side of this equation, the consequences of our sin. Now it is worth noting and this is important, that when you look at this passage, and what I mean by this passage is the context of this passage, we see in chapter 5 that David is starting to get his, his feet underneath him as a leader. Up until that point, he was fighting all these battles and he was behind the eight ball all the time. It seemed like he was always having to get in another war, another civil war. He was having you know personal problems, family problems, all these problems. Finally, in chapter 5, life settles down enough for him to build himself a really nice palace and castle for himself. In fact, here's what's interesting. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, one verse tells us that David built this palace for himself out of the cedars of Lebanon. And I'm sure we would love to hear how it was built. I'm sure it was grand, grandiose, beautiful, and glorious in every way. But the Bible really doesn't care about David's house because really the focus isn't about David or his physical house. It is about God and his great plan for his people and for all mankind. And so just this little bitty fraction, a few words in Hebrew, are given to t- describe David's house. And then we have chapter after chapter after chapter in Scripture describing the process that led to the building of the temple of God. And when it is built, we learn about everything from the doors to the, to the dimensions, all of these specifics, because this is important. It points us to God. But one of the consequences of sin, I think, is that we begin to to focus too much on ourselves. And this passage helps us to not make that mistake. David's doing well. Chapter 7 repeats this idea that that he's having rest from all of his surrounding enemies. He's like, listen, I live in a nice house, Nathan. And now it's time for me to build a big house for God. Now, here's what's interesting. One of the reasons why he makes this mistake is because he is culturally conditioned to think this way. His culture taught him that when you win a big victory for your God, you build him a big house. That's what you do. And that is, again, as we were saying a moment ago, that makes sense, that's logical, but he wasn't listening to what God had to say. He had not made it a matter of prayer. You will notice in chapter 7, or even in chapter 6, there is no real mention of David asking God, if this is what God wanted. Wow, isn't that something to think about? That we can get running 100 miles an hour and then go, oh, wait a second. Hey, God, was I supposed to do this? That's how it works so often. 
This is why one of the consequences of sin is the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands. Now that sounds counterproductive because we all have, you know, human hands and we know that we're called to be a part of the kingdom of God. So that means that there's no hope for us, you know, game over. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that when we aren't careful, we allow the culture to condition us where we think that we're right when we're not right. When we assume that what we're doing is right because it seems to fit everything around us. Listen, we are to be a peculiar people. We are to stand out. We do things different because we do it God's way. One of the reasons why Ridgecrest needs to be different than the other churches around, it's not because they're wrong, but because I believe that God is always calling his people out, a body of Christ, to be a peculiar people. We're to be unusual in a, in a way. Now, having led the Missouri Baptist Convention now for two years, let me tell you, we are a peculiar people. We're a strange bunch. And I get to go wrestle with that strange bunch of nearly 1,900 Missouri Baptist churches. But it's okay. Because let me tell you, the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands. The only way that we're successful is when we put ourselves in God's hands. James 1.5 is helpful here. If any of you lacks wisdom, by the way, that's you and me and everybody else. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. Listen, it's never safe. The kingdom is never safe in your hands. But when you humble yourself before God, you can discover his will. And that's the second thing I want to mention here. Kind of a consequence of sin is that when you fail to seek God's will, you are sure to miss it. You know, when you're not seeking God, you're not going to be able to experience him. So when we talk about seeking God, what are we talking about specifically? When I get my my preaching team together, they're always telling me I need to define terms. So what is God's will? Well, God's will is his perfect plan. It's how we tap into his glory. And I'm here to tell you that many times our passion isn't aimed in the direction of God's glory. It's aimed at success. It's aimed at accomplishing a task. But it's not necessarily about God's will. Let me tell you what should happen every time you pick up God's word. If you've ever been on a trip... Um, I was out west a few years ago, back in the days when GPS was even less reliable than it is now. That's saying something. We were out in the Badlands, and we were driving in our brand new minivan that we just bought a few months before, and the GPS was telling us to turn left. Now, I could tell that the road to the left was not that good of a road. The road I was on was the paved road, the main road, But I decided to go down that road anyway. We get over a hill and literally there is nothing in front of us. It wasn't even a road. It was a complete farce. I don't know what happened. I think it was trying to kill us. But let me say this. As soon as we got to the top of the hill and there was no road, we heard that familiar voice. Recalculating. Well, there wasn't anything to recalculate. We had to get out of the grass. We were literally in, you know, waist high grass and back up and get back to the paved road. Now listen, when you open up God's word, here's what you ought to be hearing in your heart. Recalculating. Recalculating. What is God's will? Well, let me tell you what it is. It is a lifelong pursuit of God's glory, which means you're going to have to humble yourself many, many times to the voice that says, recalculating. Think about that. Man, if you think... You've got it all figured out. 
you are in the greatest, gravest danger. I've just learned as a leader that I have to assume that I'm wrong and I'm only confident in moving forward when the people of God around me say, yes, we hear it too, we see it too. Because the human heart is wicked. Now, again, what I said first point, the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands. That's plural. But I'm going to tell you, it's much safer when many people who are praying together are seeking the will of God together. I shared with you last week that I had a time when uh, some deacons said they wouldn't pray with me. Well, listen, if we get to that place where we're not even willing to pray together, then there's no way we're going to ever find the glory of God together. I don't want to ever get to that place again because even if we have completely different visions, if we pray together, I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I have never seen an argument break out when two people were praying together. When two people are earnestly praying to God, I've never seen them come to blows during the prayer time. When we are seriously praying to God and we are seriously believing that he's present with us, we can experience his glory and his will. But when you're failing to seek God's will, you're going to miss it every time. We have to be deliberate. We're blindsided. We are in a state of whiplash all the time because we're not looking in the right direction. I've only been in one kind of semi-serious uh, wreck, and it was when I was a kid. And I can remember I was with my aunt, and she got rear-ended. And I can remember that my neck hurt. You ever had whiplash? It's because I didn't see it coming. And I'm here to tell you, when we're not looking in the direction of God, wherever the devil hits us, it's going to hurt really bad. Now, verse 7, I want you to see an ouch moment here. Verse 7 and chapter 7, listen to this. In all the places God says, I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, I want you to get that. God says, did I talk? Did I speak? Not just to you, but to any of the judges. I'm talking all the judges. I'm talking Saul. I'm talking you, David. Did I ever say, where's my house? And David would have got out his, you know, King James Version of the Bible, because I'm sure that's what he carried. And he would look and look and look and say, no, you know, you did not say that. Notice also verse 5. David might be a king, but he's no better than a servant. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. You ain't been listening, David, but I'm going to talk to you. You've not been putting your ear to the ground, but I'm about to get your attention. Listen. Listen to the word of God and remember that you are always a servant. Servants don't do what they want. They do the work of the master. And one of the consequences of sin is we forget that we are servants. Every one of us, we are not large and in charge of anything. We are servants of the kingdom of God. And when we think that we are truly in control, that's when we have not been listening to God. That's when we have, and this is our fourth point here, in terms of the the consequences of sin, we've assumed our good intentions are good enough. Remember Uzzah last week, his intention was to just protect the ark. It cost him his life. And I am here to tell you that David's intentions here were good. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God had to speak to him in the dark of the night through Nathan and say, No, you will not build this. The tabernacle was good enough at this moment. Solomon would build it. But... David needed to listen. Now, I've pointed out these four things to you because these are basic mistakes that we make because of our inherent sinfulness. 
I'm always trying to open your eyes to that because I am amazed at how blind I am to the impact of sin. We all know that we sin. We all know that. But I don't think we understand how those sins cause a residue in our life that leads to big problems over time. You know, we wash our windows every once in a while because if we don't, it gets so hard to clean that it's almost impossible to clean them. Um, I wish my son would learn this with his car. I'm like, son, wash it. Just Windex is all you need to do. But we don't, and then it gets bad, and then dad has to come and save the day. Well, how often is that the way it is with our spiritual journey? We're not learning from these mistakes. And I believe that God is showing us that we, that we must. We must listen. We must not allow the consequences of sin to destroy us. Now, our second point is this. As bad as the consequences of sin are, we have a love from Jesus that will not leave us. It will not depart. It is true that we have made mistakes. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Basically, my translation of that is, God says to David, you are mortal. You're going to die. Um, your offspring are going to receive the blessing, but you're not going to build this temple for me. God sees history as a whole. We only see it in the present. We know the past. We experience the present, but we do not know the future. God is reminding David here that he sees all past, present, and future at the same time. How can you rest in the sovereignty of God? How can you know that his way is better? Because he sees what's coming around the bend and you and I do not. So what do I do? I listen. We listen. We allow God's love to sustain us. And we know that that love will never let us go. I wish I had more time to read to you the beautiful words found in verses 12 through 17. They are full of the promises of God, the comfort that God gives David. Basically, though he will depart the stage of life, God's love will never depart from him. And that is true for us too. We will die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment, we are told in the book of Hebrews. But know this, God's love will never depart from you. Wherever it was that you came to know Jesus, wherever it was that you received him in your heart, I want you to know in that moment the love of Jesus came into your heart and that love will never let you go. The love of Jesus. Listen, the world is going to bring things at you. The world is going to shoot its missiles at you. But know this, no matter what you're going through, if the love of Jesus truly resides in your heart, the love of Jesus will never depart from you. Man, that's powerful. Even if it doesn't get an amen. It's a truth. Man, life is tough sometimes. And the devil wants you to feel like you are unloved, but that is a lie because the love of Jesus will not leave you. Even when you've messed up. Verse 17, Nathan the prophet has given us the words of God, but not to hurt David, but to provide a corrective. Even when we have misspoken or taken a step in the wrong direction, God's word will guide us back to God's love. When you say, okay, pastor, I, I know that I've messed up. I know I've made mistakes. I know I've gone in the wrong direction. So what do I need to do? Well, what you need to do is you need to listen to the word of God. You need to ask God to show you in his word. And it's amazing how it happens. It doesn't matter. I mean, there have been times where I've asked that question. And in my daily Bible reading, I'll be in some crazy place like the Song of Solomon or Ezekiel or, you know, some obscure passage that I thought I knew. And God will speak through those ancient words and tell me exactly what I need in the moment. That's how God works. 
We're not telling you to read your Bible just as a discipline. It's a way of life. It's how you have life. It's how you know the love of God. And when you've made those mistakes, there is always a way home because there is a Jesus who will guide you there. He's always there. So what we learn in these verses is that God will get all the glory. David's not going to get even a tiny bit of it. It's all about God. Verse 13, if you'll look at it, really, it, it is about more than a temple. Solomon, he says, he, your son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But you have to stop and say, well, I know my history better than that. Uh, the Davidic kingship is no longer on the throne in Israel. There is a government in Israel, but there is no Davidic king sitting on it. Well, as you read the Old Testament, you realize that it's not about an earthly kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But we do know that he was a son of David. In fact, from his mother's and his father's sides, from Mary and Joseph. We're going to talk about that a little bit when Christmas time comes around. But notice this. He is, Jesus is the son of God, but he's also the son of David. And so... David starts out this passage with a desire to build a temple for God. Instead, God gives him the gospel. Now listen to me. Here's what I want you to get from this. Even if you have big plans for God and for the ministry that God has for you, when you submit to God, when you receive his no in your life, many times you don't get this, you get this. God's dream for your life is so much bigger than what you think it could be. We ask for little things in comparison to the big things that God has for us. David's wanting to build a temple. God wants to bring salvation to all mankind in the name of Jesus. David wants to build a, a, a brick and mortar kind of place, okay? He wants to build a building out of stone and God wants to build a living house, from all the nations, a mosaic of souls that will join together in heaven forever and ever and ever and sing glory to the Lamb of God forever. We have small dreams. God has a big dream. I have a friend who has a, a daughter, and this, this little girl, um, I, I've told her that we're going to be friends. She says that that's not going to happen. Um, so, it, you know, it's an interesting relationship, you know. Uh, trying to be a pastoral friend, and, and I think she said, I don't think so. I think that's how she put it. Um, but my friend, I'm going to call her my friend. Um, my friend, her name is Lucy. And, and Lucy's mom and dad took her to Silver Dollar City the other day, and I saw this beautiful picture of Lucy playing in the leaves at Silver Dollar City. Now, Lucy's mom and dad have gone to the trouble of buying season passes, gone to the trouble to take her to a theme park where there are multi-million dollar rides to enjoy. But Lucy, my friend, decided to gather up the leaves on a fall day and play in the leaves instead of on the rides. Isn't that just like a child? And though we laugh and see that as sweet and cute, it's not so sweet and cute when God has some, something so much more big and beautiful for your life, but you're still playing in the leaves. 
at some point, you need to realize that God has something for you better than the mundane, better than the mediocre, better than whatever your past has been. God shows us in this passage that David's dream was not big enough. It's not that David overshot. It's not that David had gone over the top. No, God says, what you're wanting to do is fine, but what I have for you is better. My no, David, leads to a bigger yes. So quit playing in the leaves, church. There's something better. You know, the apostles stand witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of David and the Son of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and chapter 13, verse 23 tell us that Jesus was the Son of God, greater than Solomon's temple. And in this passage, we are reminded that God is on his throne, that Jesus brings the ultimate gift of love that lasts forever. He alone can show us that the love of God can endure all of the sin of this world, even our love. As I've been taking you all through this study of the life of David, one of the commentators that has been so good to me is Ralph Earl Davis. He, he just writes a commentaries, for lack of a better term, are usually pretty boring. He is so lucid in his writing. He says this about, about these verses here that we're looking at, just a great summary. Here's what God is saying to David, that, that when it comes to God's love, it's here to stay. Death can't annul it, sin can't destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. That's the love of God for you. I couldn't put it any better than that, so I'm just quoting him. There it is, the love of God. Death can't annul it, sin can't destroy it, and time will not exhausted. I'm here to tell you that you have this amazing love that God is offering you. But let's finish by talking about gratitude and greatness. A sign of great faith is gratitude toward God. We have Thanksgiving coming up. We have an opportunity to say thank you to God. I'm here to tell you that that God's people would do a whole lot better if they gave thanks more and complained a lot less. It, it, it is, I'm telling you, in my life, in my adult life, I have wasted more years of my life with a spirit of complaint. And every time I get in that place, I don't feel good. I don't feel better. But it's, it's kind of weird. When I just pour out thanksgiving to God, when I say, Lord, um, I'm a mess, the world's a mess, but you're great. I don't know. There's, there's a smile that comes on my face. But notice in this passage That gratitude here flows from a heart that just was told no. Now, when I was a kid, my mom said no. I didn't like it one bit. And now that I'm 45, I like it even less. Not just when mom says it, but when anybody says it. I've been a senior pastor of churches for 25 years. And you know, a lot of times I've got my way. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a good thing. Because like I said, the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands. One of the best things that happens in our lives is when we get a no and it hurts and we grow. Notice what David does. He gets a no from God and yet is still hungry for worship. Look at verse 18. Then King David went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Oh, Lord God. I wish we would all ask that from time to time when we're so convinced we're right and the rest of the world is wrong that we would just take these words from David and make them our own. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, usually what we say is, Lord, you know who I am and you know how big my house is. Why aren't you doing what I say? But David, who is the king, humbles himself and says, Lord, who am I? 
I got a no, but I'm still going to show up to worship. I was knocked down, but now I'm going to sit down and worship the Lord. Friends, that's what it takes. That's the attitude that must flow from our hearts. But only if we have gratitude to God. Our praise to God is such an important part of this equation. Our worship life. God is worth every word of praise you give. God is worth every word of praise you give. And every complaint you have against him is worthless. He's worth every ounce of praise. But every ounce of your complaint is worthless. David senses that God has dealt with him with an unusual kindness. Verses 19 through 24. He knows that God has blessed Israel in a way unique in all of human history. Verses 22 through 24. The Exodus is exhibit A of this reality. You want to see an illustration of God loving his people? The Exodus, the, the, the bringing God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land, that's it. And now God wants to do something great. He wants to work through David. He wants to provide a way forward, not just for a temple through Solomon, but for victories for the kingdom of God. That's why I gave you chapter 8, verse 6. David was victorious, but those victories really came into place. The final victories came into place once David had heard a no and then still desired to worship. When we get our worship right, everything in our lives will find its proper place. If life is out of balance, it has something to do with your worship. There's a, a lady who calls me from DeSoto every month or two. Her name is Miss Aker. Miss Aker is at church every time the doors are open, and she loves to worship the Lord. She is a tremendous person, and she's always praying for me. I know I can take on the gates of hell because of Lorraine Aker. Lorraine Aker did something that very few people in this room can even imagine doing, and Luke Harding over here is going to fall out of his chair when he hears it. She taught two-year-olds for 50-plus years. Some of us have trouble sticking with a ministry for 50 days, much less 50 years. How is this possible? How does someone do it? I'm going to tell you, my kids should have drove her to the madhouse. I'll tell you a story. we got time, right? So... You probably think no because you're hungry, but anyway, you're going to hear it. Um, so I walked by Miss Aker's class. And by the way, the first time I ever walked by that class, as the brand new pastor of First Baptist DeSoto, I walked by, I looked in, and she said, this is my room. It's locked during the week. Don't you dare come in it. And I looked at her, and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and we got along great for the next 18 years because whatever Miss Aker said was law as far as I was concerned. And she, she really was a wonderful, wonder, and still is a wonderful lady. But I, look, I walked by one day. And my daughter, because I wanted to see her, you know, uh, two-year-olds are just so cute. And I, I look in there, and there's Avery. She's marching around the room. She's in charge. Nothing new there. All the kids are laid out in neat rows. And every single kid at the top of their head, the building blocks they used in there to, to build little castles and stuff like that, she'd taken them, turned them up on the, the short side, and, and, and put it right at the head of each child. And I popped in, and I said, Avery what are you doing? She said, we're playing graveyard. <laughs> so she had killed all of the two-year-olds, First Baptist Church. 
And many of you know that my dissertation is, is, in, uh, is in funeral preaching, and so I have never been more proud of my daughter, quite frankly. <laughs> We, we're a weird family, but, but I, I think about all the things that Miss Aker tolerated and that she put up with over the years. And I know, because she's a dear friend of mine, I know many of her personal struggles. We've prayed through them together. She had a million reasons to quit teaching two-year-olds. But I'm convinced the reason she taught two-year-olds for 50-plus years is because she knew how to worship the Lord. Many of us are, are too worried about doing some action or doing some ministry, and we're not getting focused first on our worship. David was a powerful man of God, not because he was clever, not because he, he was stronger as a warrior than everybody else, but I'm convinced as I read through his life, as we get here near the end of his life, as we're talking through it together, I'm convinced that he was successful through all those years because he knew how to worship. He knew how to praise God even when God said, no, David. In fact, he worshiped the Lord even more. Here at Ridgecrest, we have Mr. Jim and Miss Sue and many others who have long track records of ministry here in our midst. How do they do it? I'm convinced they do it because they know how to worship. We need to go and sit before the Lord. And maybe God is not giving us the green light because he is waiting for us to worship. Maybe our ministries are, are lacking verve and power because we don't know how to worship. But if we will listen... He will show us the way. Let me just give you a couple things to think about as we leave. First, let me encourage you. Ask God to show you his will. And please stop assuming that a good idea is a God idea. You know, we keep, Johnny and I in particular, we keep beating the drum of prayer because we've seen that the only way to get past good ideas to God ideas is on your knees. We have prayed together with deacons and pastors and leaders now for many, many years. And, and we are still asking God to send a great revival. But we know that it has to be a God thing. Not a Jeremy thing or a Johnny thing or a man thing. It has to be from God. Are you there? Will you ask God to show you his will? Secondly, where in your life is there evidence of God's love? If those around you don't sense love. You are not where God wants you. Don't tell me you're in the will of God, but your wife hasn't felt the warmth of your love in a long time. Don't tell me you're in the will of God and your children are constantly at odds with you and you are stirring trouble always. Don't tell me that you're where God wants you when you are a bone of contention wherever you go, work, school, whatever it may be. I'm getting really tired of people who claim the name of Christ but do not show love. Where in your life is there evidence of God's love? Because I've already told you that love won't let you go. But your sinful choices often make it seem like you've let that love go. And finally, wait on the Lord. But will you worship while you wait? Before you go, worship. John 3.16 is the most basic verse maybe in, in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The first part of that verse I quoted to you. I know you know it. I know you believe it. I know that many of you claim it. But I'm asking you, how deep is that love in your life? The love that saved you is the love that calls you. It's a love that, that, that spurns you forward to do ministry. 
We need to go deeper in the love of God. The Lord has guided my heart to several books on evangelism lately. And I'm more convinced than ever that our strategy of evangelism isn't complicated. It's just intentional. Every place that God puts you this week is an opportunity to just be a loving presence. Those people aren't going to be asking you questions about cosmology and, you know, philosophy. They're not going to begin with, you know, the problem of evil and suffering most likely. But you know what? They will begin uh, to have a conversation with you when they sense the love of Jesus flowing through you. How are we going to see an evangelistic revival in this town? Well, it's when we have got enough no's from God that we start to actually listen to God and we say, Lord, just let your love flow through me. And so as we come to this conclusion, as we come to the end of our time together, ah, that's the question. Are you ready to be a vessel of God's love? David was told no. And then a door was opened beyond his imagination. Maybe you've received some no's lately, some confusing messages in your life. And you're asking, Lord, what's next? I don't know. <laughs> but I do know this. His love will not let you go. And it's time for your, to love, for your love to grow more true. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.